Hey everyone, this is Risky Business and I'm Patrick Gray. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by SpectreOps, the makers of Bloodhound and Bloodhound Enterprise. And Andy Robbins from SpectreOps is this week's sponsor guest. He'll join me a little bit later on to talk about how we might use graph theory to identify new chains of lolbins. Uh, we even coined the term lol chains uh, in, that, uh, in that interview. And the idea is that by using graph theory, it might be possible to come up with all sorts of new lolbin-like attack paths on Windows boxes. Uh, and that is a yeah really fun chat and it is coming up soon. But first up, it's time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. And Adam, we're actually going to start off this week with a bit of law and order. Wazawaka, uh, the you know known as being a ransomware operator and also an initial access broker, uh, has been indicted and sanctioned by the U.S. government. Uh, so yeah, not not good times for old Wazawaka there. Yeah, I mean, he got doxxed pretty hard uh, by Brian Krebs beginning of last year, January 2022, um, and outed him as uh, Mikhail Matviev. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he's one of these guys that's always been pretty strong on the, you know, you should stay in Russia and Mother Russia will look after you and, you know, kind of don't do crime inside Russia and you'll be fine. So he's absolutely going to have to live by those words now. Yeah, yeah, he's got to actually uh, put his money where his mouth is, uh, <laughs> assuming that his mouth is not anywhere near something that can be sanctioned. But yeah, so a, a bad time for him. I mean, obviously, he's still based in Russia, so it's not like they're going to be able to slap the cuffs on him. But, you know, bad couple of years for old Wazawaka. He, he got doxxed by Brian Krebs, and then, you know, a year and a bit later, uh, in come the sanctions and the and the charges. I actually heard from Brian last week, um, after last week's show. He listened to that and... Uh, he he picked up on something you said, which is, you know, you were wondering whether it's possible to have been a cyber criminal in the sort of early to mid two thousands, and uh, you know, for your opsec to have retrospectively survived until now, and you know, it was what you were saying is like very unlikely, and that if you've been around for any appreciable amount of time in cybercrime circles, then you're just doxable. And yeah, Brian wrote it, and he's like, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, it's not possible for you have you to have been a cyber criminal for like 15 years and, and for us not to figure out who you are, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it certainly is. And it uh, you know makes me feel good about going into podcasting 15 years ago rather than, uh, than online crime because, yeah, maybe I too would be uh, the subject of sanctions. <laughs> yeah, well, I think anyone who went into crime in 2005 in New Zealand would probably have been arrested by now though, right? Probably, I mean, this yes. is the thing about how Russia operates is that – you know, can you think of many other places that have sustained such a thriving crime ecosystem for so long? I mean, probably not. I mean, some of the bits of Africa, perhaps, but I mean, Russia is just kind of in its own category, really, in terms of hosting, you know, cyber criminals and the cozy relationship between those criminals and the you know, law enforcement and intelligence services and everything else. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, everyone seems unique. to think that the that the scene in Russia has been co-opted by the state, but I just see it as like the state's ambivalence towards it, which is like, don't, don't commit your crimes here and we don't extradite anyone. So it's just, you know, it seems more like a law enforcement, it's not our problem kind of vibe. Whereas in, in Africa, you know, a, a big issue with a lot of these 419 scammers and stuff is, is around corruption, right? Which uh, helps them uh, get off. And, you know, when, when there are law enforcement measures, they typically just move to the next country over and set up again. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. Whereas, you know, Russia is just, it's, it's a different beast compared to pretty much everywhere else you can imagine that's hosted such criminality. And, you know, the only other comparable places are what, like 
North Korea and China, but then that's a different dynamic as well. Yeah, but people get in trouble in China as well. Like, they do get arrested, you know, and in North Korea, they are all working for the government because, you know, (laughs) can you imagine getting busted for doing actual cybercrime in North Korea? Like, you're either going straight into a gulag or straight into the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Now, look, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, staying with law enforcement, uh, Plug Walk Joe, uh, this was the guy who in 2020 took over a bunch of Twitter accounts, I think including Joe Biden's to promote crypto (laughs) scams and they made like, you know... (laughs) Some thousand, you know, 60 grand. I can't remember. What was it? Yeah, 400 transfers, 117,000 in total. Um, not really worth it when you look at where Plugwalk Joe is now, which is um, extradited to the United States and pleading guilty to, um, to those uh, crimes. Yeah, and he's facing, what, up to 77 years uh, and uh, you know, the big end of a million dollars worth of restitution to victims. So and this is like 23-year-old kid, so that's a, it's a bad place to be. But, uh, you know, that a whole, um, uh, you know, sim-swapping, social engineering kind of crowd of, of, you know, kind of teenage hackers. It's kind of hard to feel sympathy for some of them, you know, with some of the nasty stuff they pulled and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I guess he's going to jail. Yeah, I mean, I would think 77 years might be overdoing it uh, a little somewhat. Over the top, perhaps, yes. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's going to be having a good time. So, um, no. yeah, bye-bye, Plug Walk Joe. Uh, moving on, and we got an article here uh, from Lorenzo over at TechCrunch. Uh, and BlackBerry's put out some research uh, suggesting that the Cuba ransomware group is actually a front for the Russian government. It's interesting. I think Lorenzo's done a good job here because he spoke to a bunch of other people in this space who are a little bit cautious about making the same call because BlackBerry's main data point here seems to be that Cuba's uh, uh, activities seem to line up with certain key events around the Ukraine war, you know, key targets, key times, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, it, it's circumstantial, but it, it is actually reasonably compelling. But I think we all need to be a bit careful with this one. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like that bit did seem a little bit, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things happening in Ukraine and there's a lot of things happening in the ransomware world. Like the fact that they line up, as you said, maybe not the most convincing argument, but, you know, it's also entirely believable that, you know, you'd have entire ransomware crews, you know, run by Russian intelligence agencies or military, whoever else. Like that's, you know, that absolutely is also believable. Yeah, I mean, the State Special Communication Service of Ukraine is quoted in this piece saying, you know, they do appear to be going after, like, intelligence uh, on Ukraine, but there's nothing, like, we're not sure that the Russian government is involved, for example. So everyone's just being a little bit cautious about this. But I I think it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting development, if true, you know, huge if true, right? Um, (laughs) It's an interesting development, if true, when, you know, to see, because Cuba has been getting around. I mean, it's been, it's a group that's been getting headlines. So for it to actually be uh, an operating front, like, I don't know that we've really seen that before, like as, as successful a masquerade uh, uh, before, you know what I mean? Yeah, because like usually it's, you know, North Koreans legitimately, legitimately ransomware people to make extra money or it's pretend ransomware that doesn't really work. Like the, the idea that you would have a, you know, functional, quite sophisticated ransomware crew also be intelligence, but also like doing the ransomware for real, not just kind of pretending at it or impersonating somebody else or, or whatever. Like it's, yeah, as you say, huge if true, not sure if true. 
Now, speaking of sort of government hackers that are operating as fronts, uh, good old, our good old <laughs> friends Anonymous Sudan have popped up again, Adam. Uh, this time in Israel. So we've got a really interesting story here from Times of Israel, which suggests that Russia may be helping Iran do things like trying to hack into their like early warning systems for, for rocket attacks and whatnot. Just all around a crazy read and pretty interesting here. Ah, uh, yes, anonymous Sudan, you know, asterisk may not in fact be Sudanese. Uh, yeah, asterisk, asterisks, uh, probably Russia. Probably Russia, that <laughs> yeah. seems to be the general consensus. So either Iranians or Russians or Russians hanging with Iranians, whatever else, uh, were carrying out denial of service attacks on, uh, there's a couple of private companies in Israel that, you know, kind of rebroadcast missile warnings via a mobile application Um for a defense warning for people. Uh, so they got denial of service and then there were some releases put out saying, oh, you know, we sabotaged the Iron Dome. Uh, like apparently there was actually some issue which the Israeli mill say is unrelated, but, you know, a non-Sudan has never been known for being particularly truthful about everything. So Yeah, but this did result in headlines at the time too that like, you know, hacktivists claim to have knocked out Iron Dome, you know, and it was clearly not true right i don't even think we covered the claim no, in any of risky business news or anything like that because it was clearly horseshit. but yeah this is what that was about and and i guess the interesting thing is here is there's a suggestion of um you know cooperation between iran and russia not surprising really given that they are allied and you know iran is providing russia with uh you know things like drones to attack ukraine with and whatnot and russia is presumably providing things in in, in return so yeah interesting all around yeah, certainly, and the the ongoing story of Anon Sudan and all of the you know kind of crazy stuff associated with it is still super interesting because we've seen that you know that name come up in other contexts where people don't really understand you know the the history and why it's a a weird and strange uh, name to see attributed to stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess one thing that's interesting too is is Russia and Iran. You know, I've I've looked at this previously. Like they do have uh, cyber cooperation agreements, and they've been in place for for some time. And they even signed a fresh one in like twenty twenty one, which seemed to focus more on defense and offense. But you would think that there would be other agreements that might be more closely held. You would think, yeah, that right? Make, that so, makes, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea that Russia might be might be helping Iran attack missile warning systems that are, you know, there for, for civilians to get alerts and whatever. I mean, it, you know, crazy world, but it makes sense. Yeah, it does. Unfortunately, it makes sense. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about Twitter. Uh, and it's, um, they've, they've launched encrypted DMs. I'm guessing this is only for the $8 fascists, is it? Uh, yes, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. So they've launched um, encrypted DMs and Andy Greenberg has a write-up here for Wired, uh, which suggests that they haven't done, you know, a, a terrific job with it, which is hardly surprising considering the reduction in headcount, you know, the troubles that that company is having, uh, you know, and trying to do this very, very quickly. But what's the, what's the gist of Andy, Andy's write-up here? Uh, I mean, basically that, I mean, yes, they have some encryption. No, it's not perfect. And no, it's, you know, the, there is just a bunch of problems with trying to do widespread user-friendly encrypted comms. And that's not not at all unique to Twitter as a problem. You know, Signal has addressed it as best they can, right? And, and their um, 
protocol obviously is what also used by Facebook um, and some of their messaging products. Um, but there are a number of things that in the Twitter implementation are not perfect. Like one of them is the lack of perfect forward secrecy um, that would allow you to do decrypt future messages given you know access to historical key material. Uh, and there's some other kind of you know fiddly implementation details like how, what's the onboarding flow for a new device look like, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it looks like Twitter is trying to be a little bit cagey about you know, exactly what claims they make about it because it's still a pretty young service and obviously the pressure from uh, Elon to deploy, I imagine, is pretty large. So getting it out there and then bolting some extra stuff in over time is probably what they are in the process of doing. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did find that interesting, actually, that Twitter is saying, you know, the goal is this. You know, the goal is to have perfect end-to-end -end security, you know, and we're not there yet, but we're getting there. And, you know, the idea that they're not out, out there making outrageous claims is actually, you know, I, I think pretty positive. But, you know, you do wonder if this is... A, you know, if anyone's going to subscribe to have a feature that you can get with Signal or WhatsApp or even Facebook Messenger for free, right? Well, exactly, yes. And um, I mean, I think it's good that they're heading that direction. And it's certainly a big improvement over straight up unencrypted, you know, private messaging DMs uh, as Twitter has historically had for, you know, however long it's been around now. Uh, so still improvement, but yeah, it's it was actually kind of refreshing to see them being relatively honest about the limitations at this point. Uh, you know, rather than, as you say, just bigging, bigging it up and, you know, dealing with the fallout. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but Twitter has been in the news for some negative reasons. Uh, the Turkish government, uh, Turkish President Erdogan, uh, you know, just before the election, asked Twitter to censor a bunch of opposition and, uh, you know, uh, critical media accounts, and Twitter just rolled over instantly. Um, something similar happened in 2014, and Twitter fought it in court, and I think they won. Or I think actually what happened is Turkey wound up suspending Twitter for a couple of days, but then they had to capitulate and let it back on. But in this case, Erdogan snapped his fingers and Twitter rolled over. <laughs> uh, now, this comes as uh, a bunch of opposition media uh, sites in Turkey were also getting DDoSed around the election. Yeah, which, you know, you've got to wonder about uh, alignment of intent and uh, all those sorts of things. But, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, political situation is pretty tenuous uh, in Turkey at the moment. And, you know, seeing these things happen, you know, right around election time, not super surprising. Um, mm. And we'll see, you know, really, you know, whether the election process does result in Erdogan continuing or whether something else happens and they, they're going to want a runoff now i think so yeah who knows yeah let's see if there's i've got a crystal ball i see more ddos <laughs> in the future right yeah, like i think that's yeah, exactly. uh, that could be it but you know uh also this week musk was uh tweeting up a storm about george soros in uh you know a bunch of messages that are were widely interpreted as being somewhat anti-Semitic. Uh, Adam, surprise, surprise. Um, surprise. Yeah, and he's been, you know, he's been tweeting up a bunch of like pretty weird, you know, sort of eight Chanish vibes um, <laughs> lately, and that's dri driving more and more people to like really want to get in on 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 Blue Sky. Uh, people would know I've been there for a little while. It's actually pretty cool because they've got you know a lot of the best features of Mastodon, um, but it's much more like a Twitter experience. The people who run the thing. Uh, seem pretty cool. Every time you see one of their team members saying something on the platform, it's usually quite uh, quite intelligent. They've just open sourced their platform. Um, and, you know, I've been playing around with it a bit as well. I managed to domain validate my username. So I'm patrick.risky.biz. Uh, and that was really easy. You know, they've made all of this stuff really easy. And the fact that they're now open sourcing the client software, I mean, it's it, it just feels like something's brewing here. And when they actually throw open the gates and let people in en masse instead of this invite system. It's, it's, um, I just have a feeling that people are going to, you know, really come over from Twitter. 
Yeah, well, that would certainly be a good thing. I mean, Twitter is very much a legacy platform, uh, you know, for, for for me these days, right? I hardly even, uh, even yeah. check it anymore. But I do kind of miss it, you know? Um, and, you know, Mastodon is great, but it is a different different vibe, I guess. Yeah, it's, than, it's not, than, it's, it's, yeah, it's a bit oppressive, uh, really, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it took a while to curate a good list of follows and, and stuff. And, like, my, my Mastodon feed's pretty good these days, but... Yeah. I you know I do miss some of the slightly more freewheeling bits of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, the chaos. Like, it's sort of like yeah. the vibe. I think someone described it once. Uh, you know, it's like when a bird flies into the classroom. You know, that, <laughs> those, those moments that you get uh, on Twitter yeah. when you know you as a you you you're in touch with your inner child as there's as there's <laughs> chaos and there's not much chaos on Mastodon, right? No, it is it is all rather buttoned down, which is ironic yeah. given that it's you know all free software and uh, and so on and so forth. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. The world's funny. <laughs> there's probably room for both. Yeah, it is. But I, you know, there's just some amazing possibilities on the cards, right? Where you can imagine that. Twitter might become an, an instance of Blue Sky, considering it, this was the project to build the new protocol for Twitter. So imagine Twitter federating through the at protocol, but then kind of being de-peered because it's full of weirdos and he's like, <laughs> Gab, and, the, and the, the weirdos are the only ones left. And then, you know, I alluded to this the other week, but what does that do to the free speech debate when they get excluded from some of these <laughs> other spaces that have been created to get away from them? And it's like... You know, no, we just don't want to be around you. Um, you can have free speech, but just do it over there with each other. That's fine. Out of earshot, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, now, look, uh, Blue Sky's not the only organization going open source. Uh, the Babook ransomware gang uh, accidentally went over <laughs> open source uh, some time ago. Uh, when was that? Uh, I can't remember exactly when it, when it happened. 2021, uh, 2021 yeah. So they, yeah. They, they leaked their source in 2021. We've got some reporting here from a bunch of outlets. Uh, we've linked through to one from uh, Cybersecurity Dive here, written by Matt Capco. Um, looks like there's something like 10 different groups now using... Babook's source code is a starting point for developing their own variants, right? It's just really interesting to see how this has played out. Yeah, like there's some that are pretty straight up, you know, just forked it, got on with life. Some that have added some new features and things. Um, so yeah, it's always interesting seeing, you know, how this plays out, you know, when someone's source code, you know, comes out and gets used widely. But I mean, there's just so much, uh, there's so many people in the ransomware world and it's just, it's interesting watching where, they, where they're focusing, whether it's, you know, on being better at, uh, you know, VMware ESXi or whether it's faster or whether it's, you know, more flexible encryption options. But, man, it's a, you know, this is the advantage of open sourcing and I guess there's lots of innovation. Whether yeah. or not they meant to do it on purpose, I don't know. Yeah, and there's this other group that's just popped up called RA Group, which is targeting manufacturing, finance, insurance, and pharmaceuticals. And they've got like, they've stolen like 2.5 terabytes of data and they're just sort of going ape. And that's the thing, like once you've got some good quality source to start with, like off you go, right? Yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever you can do with those tools, uh, that's your uh, that's your edge in the market. <laughs> yeah. Now let's just uh, whiz through a few a few of the ransomware stories. Like as yeah, regular sure. listeners know, we don't like to sort of get bogged down in this. But um, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the newspaper, was actually unable to print a couple of its editions because it was ransomware, and this this was in the days leading up to a mayoral uh, election, so that was uh, not ideal. Uh, someone tried to extort Dragos because they, <laughs> I think they owned like a new hire's webmail. And so when the onboarding email arrived, like they went through the onboarding process and they were able to get to a SharePoint or something, but it was shut down pretty quick. You got to give kudos to Dragos for catching it uh, pretty quick and also for actually talking about it publicly. 
Yes, yeah, so they did a really detailed write-up of you know kind of how the process went down with the timeline and so on, and that was that was really you know nice to read and see. Um, I mean, that problem of identity anchored to personal webmail accounts, like that is a problem for everybody. You know, the yeah. idea that you can onboard employees through either devices you don't control or through you know with the trust route anchored into a personal email address, like that is kind of hard. And I don't, you know actually how you would go about solving that problem, and like probably you have to onboard like on a video call with you know your manager or something like that like it does put a bunch of friction uh, into that onboarding process for people so anyway good that they wrote it up good that uh, they dealt with it real quick uh, and that the controls they had in place were adequate yeah yeah and dragos for those who are not aware that's a you know it's a uh, uh, ics security firm um that's pretty well known and what else have we got here? Like the city of Dallas is still struggling to get stuff back online after its ransomware attack. So that's been a pretty uh, significant one. The Swiss uh, tech technology conglomerate, ABB, which is a big company. Um, yeah, they are big. They're huge. Yeah, they've had some sort of incident. Uh, I think it's Black Blackbuster, is it? Yeah, anyway. Um, they've, been, they've had some sort of ransomware incident. Not sure how that's going. And we got crews running around using the um, paper cut bug. I shouldn't laugh, man, but like it was just so predictable that this thing was going to get owned. What I'm amazed by is like the number of different threat actors using this, like every APT, every ransomware group. It's just like a free for all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big old uh, paper cut party out there uh, on on the internet. And in this case, we've seen what a bunch of schools uh, getting themselves compromised through their printers. So, like yeah. that's just rude. Yeah, right no, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, a British outsourcing company named Capita um, has said that cleaning up after its ransomware uh, attack incident will cost it £20 million. The National Gallery of Canada is recovering from a ransomware incident. Anyway, you get the idea. There's still a lot of ransomware out there. Uh, Yum Brands, which uh, you know operates such uh, uh, brands as like KFC and Taco Bell, um, they're getting sued, I think, by employees because there was a ransomware attack and a data leak. Um, so you know we've seen these sorts of things before, but you know just on and on and on it goes. Uh, Dina Temple Rustin and Gabriella uh, Gluek over at the Record uh, have a great interview actually about the F uh, with the FBI uh, about its uh, uh, hive takedown and, and, and infiltration um, just to, just to cure. I mean, it doesn't really add all that much to, to what we know, um, but it's a, yeah, it's a really good read. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. It's always nice seeing like behind the scenes of, you know, what it's like when you stumble into the control panel of, uh, you know, the Hive ransomware, for, for example, and, you know, now you can just mint your own decryption keys, but then what do you actually do? Like how long are you going to have access for? How do you identify victims? How do you get in contact with them? Like, what do you do with people who don't even know they've been ransomware yet? Uh, yeah. Just a bunch of, you know, sort of slice of life uh, of being a, you know, in this case, I think it was the Tampa, FBI Tampa office. Yeah. Um, uh, doing this stuff and yeah just it's just really interesting uh, you know reading other people's experiences uh, of this kind of stuff yeah i mean i think it's one thing that we've noticed right because our careers have stretched over a couple of decades now right one thing that's been interesting to observe is when you see an interview with some law enforcement person doing cyber stuff you know 20 years ago you'd be like oh you know this is pretty embarrassing whereas now you know you got an interview with someone from the fbi uh, tasked with disrupting a ransomware operation and you know they're they're saying really interesting and insightful things right like that's new yeah yeah absolutely like i mean going if you go back and watch the you know the classic movie hackers seeing the way the fbi are portrayed uh, you know in that as just being clueless and always saying the same throwaway line on the in the tv interviews every time like compared to now such a different 
yeah. you know, different experience because they've got real problems now. Yeah, yeah, they sure do. Uh, now, Adam, one thing you and I both did this week was to take a bit of a deeper look at this um, leak of key material in the MSI breach. Now, we touched on it briefly last week talking about how – now, there's two things, right? There's secure boot and what's the other thing? A boot guard. Yeah, so there's secure boot and boot, car, boot guard and these are like, you know, features to uh, uh, protect UEFI, uh, you know, uh, comp- firmware on, on motherboards and whatnot and various things, right? So, you know, this is stuff where my knowledge isn't super great. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest. And it was a little bit hard to understand what the true scope of this leak uh, actually means. So you and I, we tracked down the, the guy from Binally, uh, Alex Matrasov, and uh, had a good chat to him. Uh, yesterday, and he he had some interesting. I, th- I think the really interesting things that he said uh, in that call that you were on uh, were around the sort of um, security of this whole, you know, ecosystem, right? And that basically, Intel is not demanding uh, that manufacturers are actually careful with this stuff, and this is a, you know this should open our eyes a little bit as to how this whole thing could could go quite wrong. Um, but Adam, you know, as I say, you were on the call as well. I mean, what was the gist of what Alex was talking about? Because honestly, a lot of it went over my head. Yeah, so like there's an on-paper design for how we're meant to be able to build trusted hardware and get it up into the operating system through the boot process in a way that verifies the integrity of every kind of previous step in the process. And Boot Guard and Secure Boot both have roles to play in that. Um, and I think the thing that really came out of that conversation was, you know, there is a paper design and then there's the actual as-built reality, like of the commercial relationships, of the subcontractors, of, you know, Taiwanese vendors that, like MSI, for example, that, you know, are mostly focused in an enthusiast market, in a gaming market, rather than building corporate stuff. But they do subcontracting work for other vendors. They build, you know, systems for, you know, embedded systems that might be branded under, you know, Lenovo or whoever else. So it's actually a much more complicated system than it looked on paper when it was designed. And the realities of doing things like key revocation you know it's not like we think it's hard dealing with the tls world you know with web Mm. servers and everything else like when you're trying to do this in hardware land where perhaps you've got a limited number of slots for key material that you could revoke or you know where there's many many complicated business relationships well and how do you how do you actually then trust the new firmware that comes down you know how and that was one interesting thing that he was saying is that you know you've got a bit of a supply chain problem now because if someone actually manages to own MSI's firmware distribution infrastructure, you know, they're going to be able to perma-own everything, right? Yes. And that's that's not yes. great. <clears throat> no, it's really not. Uh, and like own it or brick it or, you know, so doubt even because I mean the process of recovering from this for MSI is is complicated. Mm. And as you say, like if you just downloaded updates, you know, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, and actually, the other thing that um, that Alex said was there was another piece of key material involved, which is for, a, a, they call it the orange unlock mode. And so that's an Intel set of key material uh, that equipment manufacturers use during like the motherboard build process. Like, so when you're designing a motherboard, you can't do it with all the security controls on. And so there is also this key material for that orange unlock. So it's kind of similar to a you know, like a, a, a jailbreaking yeah, yeah, mobile yeah, yeah. hardware or something like that because there's very similar features these days. So understanding the impact of that as well uh, was a thing we didn't really, you know, I didn't understand when we were talking about it last week was the distinction mm. between the kind of 
end user, you know, where the end user in this case is MSI versus Intel originated key material that might be shared in a bunch of other, like shared across platforms that, you know, a particular chipset or a particular, you know, iteration of the CPU. So it is actually quite complicated. And the problem is what do you, how do you fix it, right? I mean, yeah. you consider the, the problems we've had in other environments where key material has been lost or burnt or, uh, you know, and revoking it is not really a thing that's ever been, you know, if it was designed in in the first place, it also hasn't really been exercised. Uh, I'm thinking like Blu-ray key, Blu-ray, you know, uh, yeah. disc keys and that kind of thing. Um, it, where like crypto systems in the wild are just complicated. Well, I mean, I, 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 I did at one takeaway. point, you would remember this, ask him, shouldn't this stuff be in a HSM? And his reaction was like, <laughs> yes, yes, it should. You know, yeah. and, and, and I mean, he told us some staggering things, which is, you know, once some of this stuff had been exposed, you take those private keys and search for them and they start turning up in like public GitHub repos. You know what I mean? So this <laughs> yes, is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a big problem. And he makes the point too, that Intel doesn't want to slow down time to market for its yeah. its partners, right? So they're letting a lot of this stuff persist. And this is turning into an ecosystem-wide uh, issue. Anyway, here's, here's an excerpt of what he had to say to us uh, on our call yesterday. From the ecosystem standpoint, this attack, it shows how the ecosystem is weak to impact of such supply chain attacks, I would say. I don't think the ransomware group, which has been attacking MSI, they've been considering like a impact on the whole ecosystem, but at the same time they did that. And uh, I think for the industry, it should be like a eyes opening moment when we need to understand what we should do and how we can remediate such things and basically Threat actors will be not leverage of the weaknesses of such supply chain blind spots and uh, uh, install persistent payloads in the level where endpoint solutions in many cases are useless. Yeah, so there you go. And, and it, <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments for him because he runs, a, you know, he's the CEO of a company that does firmware supply chain security, right? And, um, you know, this is exactly the sort of stuff that he's been sort of thinking about for a long time. So this this sort of this sort of thing for him is it's his you see you see moment. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, gets to point to all the red string on the wall and and uh, you know finally feel like <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so that was that was interesting. I just wanted to do a bit of a follow up discussion there because we did go a little bit further down the rabbit hole. Uh, yes. Another thing that I wound up going further down the rabbit hole on um, was okay. So last week we spoke about this snake takedown, and I made a big deal out of this being uh, being a new thing, right? Like this is a shift in strategy. It was even the headline for the um, uh, for the show. And I actually got some pushback on that from a couple of people. One of them was Chris Krebs, who as you hear in this clip, uh, you know, we triggered him uh, with this discussion. But here's what Chris <laughs> Krebs had to say. So last week you triggered me a little bit uh, talking about the DOJ's disruption of the Turla snake malware using that same updated Federal Rules Civil Procedure, Rule 41B, that's the same authority that DOJ had used for Cyclops Blink and for uh, for the Hafnium operation in 2021 and possibly others. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think it speaks to that bigger, bolder, more robust, disruptive posture that you've been calling for, certainly, for going on, what, half a decade now. Um, so it's, it's good to see this in practice. And, and in fact, that's, as you pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that was the, the one of the core key questions that I really wanted to dig in on with the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, at the RSA conference. What is this shift? What's behind this shift? How are you thinking about it? 
what are we going to see going forward? And I think that's the one area um, maybe that, that we probably could have a little bit more clarity out of DOJ on is it's what's the broader policy framework within which this uh, this authority is being used and kind of what is qualifying as an operation or is it just kind of, you know, when you see it. So nonetheless, you know, big, big kudos to D- DOJ and the USG for, for disrupting the turtle operation and certainly hope to see more of it. So this is interesting. When Chris first reached out to me last week, he's like, why did you not mention the Hafnium stuff? You know, this was the removal of uh, web shells from compromised exchange machines. Why didn't you mention Cyclops Blink? And I, you know, to be honest, I had to think about it. Well, why didn't I mention that? Why, you know, why is this different? And there's a couple of reasons there. Like, first of all, using a web shell to remove a web shell from a compromised exchange box feels very different to permanently modifying a, you know, normal Windows workstation endpoint, right? Um, also, in the case of Cyclops Blink, that was an IoT botnet. Now, both the Hafnium stuff and the Cyclops Blink stuff were widespread, indiscriminate malware campaigns that were just compromising heaps and heaps of um, uh, devices, right? So that's that's one thing that makes them somewhat different. And then I had someone else say, but what about the Kelios uh, botnet takedown? So I actually went and tracked down the affidavit and read it. And what's interesting is even on like, you know, the first couple of pages of the affidavit, the FBI has written, look, we're not going to, we're not seeking to actually modify these endpoints. There will be no modification to the endpoint. All we're going to do is distribute new peer lists um, to the malware because it was a peer-to-peer malware with some backup domains that they'd seized uh, for C2. We're going to seize these peer lists, seize these domains, uh, sorry, uh, modify the peer list, seize some domains and sync all the malware. And then I think I think it was in the case of Kelios or it might have been another one. No, maybe it was Game Over Zeus. I can't remember. I've been reading all about these um, uh, over the last few days. But even in one of the cases, um, the FBI made a big deal out of uh, deleting some, some malware off some machines but they'd actually sought consent from the people who owned the machines before they removed the malware. So what makes it interesting in this case is that they used the same rules, you know, rule 41, right? To rule 41B to go after these things and actually permanently modify the endpoint. And that is a big deal, especially when you're talking about an APT operation that they just blinked out of existence, right? So this is very much a new thing. When you're talking about permanent modification of, you know, especially an APT uh, 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 computers that are that belong to an APT botnet, uh, you know, this is um, uh, very very different. So that's why I didn't think to sort of compare it to those uh, to those other examples. Do you know what I mean? Like this does feel quite new, and there is a very big difference between updating a peer list or I think in another case they sent a command via. Uh, C2 that they take in control of that would kill the process of the malware, but they didn't remove it. They sort of marooned it. So now we're getting into this game of actually removing malware. The Dutch did this a long time ago, but this is a first for the Americans to be reaching onto those endpoints and 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 you know removing that malware. Do you do you sort of see it the same way as me that this is a significant threshold that they've crossed? Uh, it did feel more significant. Yes. Um, By the way, I should point out it was like only a handful of systems in the United States got uh, the snake malware removed from them, right? Because FSB doesn't normally target people in the United States. So I think it was like eight boxes total, which we should have mentioned last week. But yeah, yeah. go on. Sorry. Yeah. Like, like I, I had forgotten some of those examples you, you brought up. Um, and I think this one does seem more memorable to me. So whether yeah. that's a, you know, I don't know if that's a metric that, that counts or not. Um, but yeah, this felt different. I mean, snake is a, you know, 15, 20 year 
legacy piece of gear. Like sort they did of. I mean, Tom and Gruck did a great podcast about this in Risky Business News on, on Between Two Nerds the other day where it's they sort of described it a bit like a grandfather's axe, you know what I mean? It's had two new heads yeah. and three new yes. handles, right? So <laughs> yeah. I, it's, not, it's not exactly like it, it's 20-year-old malware. Well, but the, I guess like the the lineage is yes back that to that era of time. Um, I also did think like they did it on Russian Victory Day, which you know <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit of a middle finger right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> and I don't know whether you know some of the other ones had quite that degree of you know of if you <laughs> involved in it, and that counts for something too. Yeah, I mean, it's another thing that I just wanted to slightly correct is last week we spoke about how, you know, multiple agencies were involved in this. I think that's more of a US government PR thing where they wanted to make this look like a whole of government thing. This was very much FBI who did this. So uh, kudos to them. And I know we yeah, got a bunch job. of listeners at FBI and we know it was you. We know it was you. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's why, um, you know, that's really why I, I, I think that this is different. You know, there is the, the, the fact that you're permanently modifying an endpoint which is a legal thing, like it's it's a, it's a legal threshold, right? And I'll actually uh, have to go Google it and throw a link into uh, this week's show notes, find it again. But there's a Bloomberg Law article too that really looks about looks at whether or not what the FBI is doing under these authorities is even legal, um, which is kind of <laughs> interesting. So it's all uncharted territory. And as to Chris's question about, you know, what's the plan here? What's the policy? Um, you know, I think that's a good question. And I think even yeah. though DOJ and Lisa Monaco are doing some some great work uh, in this area, it might be nice for that to be spelled out. Like where, you know, where does it, where, where do they, how far do they go? Where do they stop, you know? Yeah, but that's also very useful information to know as an adversary. Like if you know exactly where those lines are, then you can kind of, you know, weasel, mm. do a little bit extra weaseling around it. Um, so, but like we're all still feeling this stuff out. Like it's all new and exciting and as you say, like the you know the fact that not even that many years ago, like three or four or five years ago, you know we were getting user consent to you know turn off yeah. malware on their box, right? It's it's a you know we've come a long way. Yeah, we have. Because it was always that stupid argument, like what if you remove malware from someone's medical device and it stops and you kill someone, and it's like, yeah, come on, really? That was always <laughs> kind of a dumb argument, you know what I mean? Because that medical yeah. device, like, what if the botnet operator sends a command and that does something? Like it, yeah, it just, you know, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah. There were so many conversations like that back in the day, you remember. There were, yeah. Uh, Cisco, moving on. And Cisco has uh, uh, just published a report on a new phishing as a service tool called Greatness. Uh, looks pretty good, got to be honest. Yeah. Looks pretty yeah. good. And there's a few of these out there now, right? So this is just going to drive more and more FIDO2 uh, adoption, you would think. Yeah, like this is, it's pretty polished and will uh, you know handle all of the fiddly bits of the man in the middling and so on for you. Even like pulls the logos off the victim's like Office 365 login page so that everything looks good. So, yeah, nice and polished, uh, which, you know, I guess that's what happens when your tools are kind of battle-hardened, right? They get used in the real world and they get better. Yeah, and it's uh, just uh, doing uh, 0365 at the moment, but, you know, the expectation yes, so. is that it's going to support, you know, <laughs> other, other um, <laughs> services soon. Uh, what else have we got here? Now, this is interesting, right? So this is a, another one from Cybersecurity Dive, another one from Matt Capco. Well done, Matt. Um, and CrowdStrike is out there talking up how vulnerable people's VMware uh, environments are and saying how target-rich an environment uh, VMware deployments are and that people are getting rinsed left and right. 
I just find this interesting to see CrowdStrike taking a shit on another on another vendor, like, and it makes you wonder, <laughs> like, what they're seeing and how bad it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, it must be must be pretty bad. But I mean, VMware has been. You know, they are like legacy cloud, I guess, these days, yeah. right? And they're in the process of, you know, trying to sell themselves to Broadcom, which, you know, has it's kind of where enterprise software goes to die these days. They're sort of the new open text. Um, and, you know, when you look at how much support VMware's got, I mean, I used to run VMware on the desktop for virtualization. Um, and like it's just getting creakier and creakier and you read about you know layoffs and, and downsizing yeah. and so on like it doesn't feel like the best base to build all of your infrastructure on but there is so much ESX yeah. and associated plumbing out there like it's a pretty natural place for the bit rot to have well set in by now it's um, funny when the, you just you just get that vibe right where the buttons start looking old they're yeah. using some fonts yeah. that haven't been cool for a while you know and it yeah. just gives yeah, you that exactly. oh. color schemes and there's no dark <laughs> yeah. mode and uh in vSphere, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get that feel of bit rot, bit yeah. rot everywhere in that platform. So, I yeah. actually got into a Barney with the CEO of VMware in 2007. I was at VMworld in Los Angeles, and yeah. uh, it was Diane Green who was the, the CEO at the time. And I asked what I thought was a fairly normal question, which is like, you know, how at that time, right? This is sort of pre AWS, like taking off and all of that. Um, so at the time, you know, VMware was just really about sharing hardware. Uh, and being able to run multiple instances on one box. And at, also at that point, like VMware was pretty much everywhere by that point. You know what I mean? So the question was like, how are they going to continue to grow? Like, so the, the, the question was, how are you not going to be a one-trick pony? You know what I mean? Like what next? And the reaction I got was, was strong. Uh, I believe it was, who the hell is briefing you people? This is about <laughs> infrastructure. This is about that. And, you know, she, you know, in my view, did not do an, a, an effective job at all of sort of explaining what the vision was there. But, you know, if they had have played their cards a bit differently, they could have been Amazon, you know? Yeah, and yeah, and they just yeah. missed the boat, man. They just missed the boat. They got eaten alive by what are now the cloud majors. And, you know, they're, they're kind of dead. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just easy to forget that 15 years ago, VMware was like the hottest company on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember first getting hold of, of VMware back in the, in the old days. Wait, like, you mean I can work on... DOS virus bootloaders without having to reboot my machine with the hard drive unplugged. Like that's, this is super handy. Um, And yeah, it just, yeah, you know, so many corporates and big enterprise networks are a heap of VMware plumbing that's old and unpatched and probably out of support in many cases. And, you know, everyone just relies on it continuing to work like it has, but, you know, there is so much old nasty Java in there and old nasty components and, yeah, the ransomware operators understand that now and they've got the tooling. You know, it's a it's a bad time to have someone near your, you know, the control plane of your of your VMware farm. Yeah, that argument es- escalated too, uh, to the point where the PR guy in the room looked like he was going to vomit. Uh, sorry, Duncan. <laughs> Excellent. And was actually passing me notes asking me to stop. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Top work. Good man. <laughs> so yes, uh, that was a that was an interesting experience. Um, now I just want to touch on these ones quickly because Tom Uren uh, is going to take a closer look at them in tomorrow's edition of Seriously Risky Business, and of course we will chat about them as well in the corresponding podcast. Uh, but the National Crime Agency in the United Kingdom. This is an Alexander Martin story for the record. The NCA has won a legal challenge uh, brought against it by uh, people who had evidence collected against them during the whole EncroChat thing. This was one of the crime phone 
networks that was infiltrated by law enforcement and obviously everyone's messages were dumped. Um, you know, clearly criminals do not like this and they challenged it and um, they have lost. This tends to be the result. Uh, you know, the High Court or the Supreme Court of uh, South Australia uh, here in Oz uh, threw out a challenge uh, uh, over Anom. You know, the, the courts just looked at it and said, look, nice try, but unfortunately for you, this is going to be admissible. So this just tends to be the result. I mean, obviously things would be a little bit different in the United States with their Fourth Amendment, but... Uh, yeah, things are not going well for the users of crime phones who've had stuff uh, compromised. And then we've got a Joe Cox story that pairs nicely with this one uh, over at Motherboard. Looking at a uh, secure phone network that calls itself number one business communication, which I just <laughs> love. Very much like the, um, you know, legitimate business person society uh, kind, of, kind of vibes. <laughs> and apparently that is... Uh, the Calabrian Mafia apparently uh, really like this one and are using it. And the sting in the tail of this story comes in the last couple of paragraphs where apparently these, they, they, this number one business communication company uh, issued a notice to customers uh, earlier this year informing them all that uh, the key material is going to change and, you know, certi- we're rotating our certificates, but everything's fine, <laughs> which makes you wonder, right? It does. It does certainly make you wonder. And the, yeah, the European policing agencies do seem pretty adept uh, at uh, taking down taking down these sorts of operations, so yeah, I would be pretty sus uh, about the update with new keymat. Uh, <laughs> if I were a Sicilian mobster, maybe time for I don't know a different a different phone. Now, Adam, of course, you know we spoke some time ago about that Outlook bug, uh, that the awful nine point eight out of ten one, where you could just like you know, send a calendar invite to Outlook and it's going to give you the, its hash or whatever, like the really, the really, <laughs> really bad one. Um, Microsoft, of course, patched that because I think, you know, it wasn't it? It was the Russians, right, using it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a bunch of people out using that one. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, Microsoft patched that one, but apparently the patch could be bypassed by changing a single character in the exploit. Oh, my God. Hang on, where is it? Where is it? There it is. That's the one. Yeah, we, we debated whether or not to talk about this this story, but it's, uh, but it's, it's just like it's we have good. to give them a kicking over this, right? We do. We do indeed. So according to researchers from Akamai, uh, you could just basically stick an extra slash in the path uh, and that would bypass the checks they put in place. And Windows paths are more complicated than they look, so I will give Microsoft that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, uh, of failures that relate to, you know, file path parsing in Microsoft's operating systems. Like, it's pretty grim that it's the year 2023 and we still don't understand all of the ways that you can, you know, encode a UNC path. Yeah. Uh, I think in this case, uh, they found a path that would resolve to being a local file for the checking function, but re- would resolve to being a network resource for the actually go get the file function. Uh, so net result was, as you say, uh, you pass your hash off to the other end uh, and then yeah. you get relayed or cracked and uh, and owned. So Yeah. The yeah, good job. Hash, obviously, yeah. So <laughs> not so great, right? Not and, so great, and the, no. You know, the funny thing is it would have been funnier if it was dot, dot, slash, three characters, right? <laughs> a single slash, it's just... It's just Mega fail, whereas dot dot slash would have just been better for comedy. Maybe dot dot slash would work. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe some uh, you know double URL encoding or something classic like that. But no, like just straight up whack another slash in the path. And uh, Bob Robert's, is Robert's the proverbial your uncle. Yes, Robert's your mother's brother, uh, as we say. <laughs> oh dear. And finally, we're going to end with another Joe Cox one for our uh, you know you know where I grew up in Melbourne. There used to be a little thing on the front page uh, of every day's newspaper called the Odd Spot which was just, you know, some weird and wacky news from around the world, single paragraph. And I guess this is our equivalent of the odd spot 
uh, which is that someone was making a bunch of money by selling leaked you know, hot new tracks from Frank Ocean, which turned out to be like AI generated. And uh, this is quite funny to me. <laughs> and he sold them for like a couple of thousand bucks on some, you know, Frank Ocean uh, Discord server. Uh, and yeah, that's what a, what a world we live in. Uh, yeah. that, you can, uh, that you can do that and make a few bucks. So. Yeah, so if someone's trying to sell you bootlegged risky business editions, you know, a day in advance, <laughs> uh, you know, you never know. It could be AI generated, right? Mm. Be interesting to see if it's better than the real thing. Might be. Who Don't knows? know if there's much of a market for that, to be honest. <laughs> but let's see. Well, Adam, that's it uh, for the week's news. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a you know, fun time as always, and we'll do as it all always. again next week. We certainly will, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Andy Robbins from SpectreOps. And uh, SpectreOps makes Bloodhound the red team tool for mapping Windows Active Directory attack paths. Uh, And that is now a blue team tool as well. You can run it against your Active Directory and it'll tell you what the most likely attack paths are. It'll also identify things like misconfigurations and even alert you when the directory team does something silly. Uh, And you can find out more about that at bloodhoundenterprise.io. Uh, But yeah, Bloodhound uses graph theory to map out these attack paths through Windows Active Directory. But Andy joined me for this interview about another possible use of uh, graph theory techniques, which is like mapping out lolbin-like attack paths on a single endpoint. Uh, This is really cool, like red team theory stuff, hacker theory stuff. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. So let me kind of give a high-level view and then we can dig in, you know, as as we like. I think for the past... 20 years or so, there has been this kind of arms race between blue team and red team. Red team comes out with a very reliable, works every time initial access method or lateral movement method, and they use it for years and years and years and years and years. Over time, the detection side of the industry has gotten better at noticing those things and writing very high fidelity detections for those things. So that the lifespan of, you know, a red team tactic for lateral movement, let's say, that lifespan gets shorter and shorter, you know, as we continue through time. So now you might have a new Lulbin come out. And as long as, as long as it's reliable, as long as it's useful, it will get some attention. And then that attention draws attention from defenders. And it might be on the shelf for a month, two months, six months, you know, depending on how many people are aware of it. And then it's time to move on to the next thing. So at a high so, level... So the, the dynamic right now is basically Lulbin whack-a-mole. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. It's Lulbin whack-a-mole where... How many Lulbins do you think that we have discovered over the past five or six years? 20? Fewer than 20? I couldn't but even tell you. <laughs> I, I'm not plenty. sure exactly. Yeah, yeah. plenty. Yeah. But if, if I compare that to the number of possible Lulbins that there are it has to be a minuscule number that we're aware of right now. And I think graph theory is uniquely situated to solve that particular problem where we can not know about just what's the new hot low bin that people are doing right now. We can know about every possible low bin on a, you know, default windows installation or a golden image, you know, standard corporate issue laptop. 
And then, well, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because that's yeah. that's a bit of a wrinkle in all of this. Is when we talk about lol bins, traditionally we've spoken about them as yeah, Microsoft uh, utilities or whatever that are left behind, you know, by the operating system. But you know, the the blue sky gets a lot bigger when you start looking at enterprise software because you can use enterprise software as lol bins, and there is so much of it and. You know, as awful as some of Microsoft stuff is, like if there was an awful Olympics, the enterprise software makers would be, you know, is it possible to have three gold medals in every race? Because they, <laughs> right. would, uh, they would win triple gold every time, right? Right. Yeah, I think, I think it's, a good, it's a good thing to point out is that there's a lot of attention on the Microsoft Lobins, uh, like MSHTA, for example, or MS Build uh, as another example. And I think... Microsoft gets a lot of attention there just because of the ubiquity of those different binaries. Yeah, because you be land on a box, on it's going to be there. One. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. will be there guaranteed. But there is also this other world of lull bins that exists in vendor software that maybe if you're not actually going to healthcare organizations on a regular basis, if you're not going to defense contractors on a regular basis, you may not even be aware of these different vendors. You may not be aware of the attack surface that they create. And why would you be, right? So some teams do have the internal capability to take initial access, look at the software installed in the system, analyze the configurations, look at the execution paths, and develop kind of on the fly during an assessment your own lulbin primitive that's custom tailored to that specific system. Well, that doesn't really scale that well. And it also puts the vendors in this awkward spot and it puts the customer in an awkward spot where the customer has to figure out, can the vendor fix this? Does the vendor want to fix this? What do I do about this? And unfortunately, a lot of time, the onus for dealing with that specific problem falls on the customer and they've got to shore up their own capability to make up for this vendor-created problem, I would say where this vendor software is degrading the customer security posture, but it's still kind of on the customer to fix it. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you were to apply graph theory to, you know, much in the same way that you apply it to the Active Directory pro problem, right, which is to, you know, I think you've described it as Google Maps for, um, uh, you've described a, a Bloodhound as, you know, Google Maps for Active Directory shows you all of the escalation paths to get, you know, where you want to go right how would you then apply the same thinking and graph theory to uh you know escalation paths on a system right through lol bins now i understand you know the theory of it using graph theory to try to figure it out but I'm, i mean practically how could you you know collect all of that information about the lol bins that would allow you to feed it into a graph in the first place yeah so that's going to require skill that touches many different disciplines right uh, at a high level, we're talking about execution pathways. So a user inputs something into the computer and then things happen and those things chain together through components of the operating system itself, through binaries, through DLLs, maybe even application shims. So there are all these different pieces that together form these lulbin primitives. So... At a practical level, I think a way to approach this is choose one lulbin that we know very well, MSHTA. We know it very well. It's very well studied. We understand the execution paths that go from user input, i.e. double-clicking on a file, 
to malicious outcome, i.e. payload running on the system, the attacker has a shell. Take that one primitive and study and automate the extraction of all the information that's needed to put that into a graph. So how exactly does a double click turn into running mshta.exe? Well, we have file handlers. Okay, we could enumerate those. Okay, but then how do we turn something in the .hta file into executing a PowerShell command? Okay, well, there's a particular function in this DLL. How does that get called? So chasing that through from this one very, very well-known primitive, I believe applying that to other DLLs, other components of the operating system, other file handlers, we will discover other lulbins. Eventually, I think it's possible to take that concept and discover not just, you know, where the next two or three lulbins or people are going to are but I, be, uh, I, I think I with. think I see where you're going. Where you can discover yeah. lol, lol chains. Let's uh, coin it. Yeah, yeah, lol. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, you know, earlier you're saying like Bloodhound is like Google Maps for Active Directory because it finds all the attack paths. That's exactly what I think is possible with lolbins. Is let me find all the possible lol chains. Let's say, and and then we can deal with that problem also in a in a similar way to how we kind of deal with that problem in in our commercial offering in Bloodhound Enterprise. So I mean know, I mean when it, we when we look at when we look at the way stuff chains together, I think one of the one of the great talks I ever saw at a security con it was Billy Rios. It was like over a decade ago, did a talk in Australia called Will It Blend? And it was about bug chaining and taking all of these little you know, little bugs that on their own weren't that serious and then chaining them together and getting RCE, right? Now, when oh, yeah. we look at when we look at lolbins, most of the time when red teamers are using them and thinking that, you know, they're super clever, they're, they're, they're really operating on easy mode, right? Because they've got this immensely powerful system utility that's highly privileged that'll do whatever you tell it to once you've got some level of interaction with it on a machine. I guess what you're talking about, though, is being able to enumerate... Um, stuff that's a little bit more subtle and multi-stage to get the same effect and you know you're you're sort of proposing using graph theory to figure out the mechanics of that process have i have i about got it right yeah that's exactly right i think like the mechanics that you mentioned that's one half of it i think the other half is not just the mechanics of those execution pathways but also add identity into that graph as well and so we can understand if i start this service, it's going to run as that user. And then I can cause that user to run this code, which will then be run as this other user. And so then not only can we find arbitrary command execution primitives, but we can chain those together with identity as well and find privilege yeah. escalation as well, which is even more impactful. So is this something you're actually looking to to build? Or at the moment, is this just an interesting area for, you know, research and theory? Yeah, it's more the latter right now. So our, our yeah. plates are pretty full. Uh, <laughs> we're all pretty busy, right? It's uh, it's kind of a passion project of my own, I would say, at this point. And yeah. uh, it's, it's very early, very early stages. But you never know where that's going to wind up, right? Now, I know another area of sort of interest and in research for you, which is going to have more immediate applications to the product, even if they're a little bit 
of a way out, right? Uh, more of an impact on, on Bloodhound is, you know, you're trying to figure out now, you've absolutely mastered the on-prem stuff with Active Directory. Now you're trying to figure out, <clears throat> excuse me, how to make yourself useful in Azure AD, right? And it's a completely different uh, paradigm, right? So, so how's that whole process going? Like, where are you looking at at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. So with Active Directory, we're kind of at the point where the more that we add into the product, the more arcane that we have to go with Active, like the dark arts of Active Directory knowledge. Uh, so things like, you know, Active Directory certificate services or, or even like maybe someday things in the kernel. But with Azure, it is such, for attackers, it is, it is relatively a new platform that attackers are targeting. And so... We have a lot of the fundamentals covered with Azure in the product today. So the basics of the different identities that you can have, the basics of how different privileges are doled out, whether that's through Azure AD roles or MS Graph app roles or Azure RM roles. But, you know, a lot of the focus now is on what are the other combinations of that, of those foundational elements that people are actually using in real life. What are what are real organizations doing commonly that create common issues? The same way that you know people have been doing an Active Directory for decades. What are the mm. common issues that are appearing or emerging out of those building blocks that Microsoft has made available that are putting those different environments at risk? Something I mean, it's really... different, isn't it? Because you don't think of like typical lateral movement paths through Azure AD because they, you know, no one's really figured that out yet. Yeah. And I think a, a, a good example to show the difference is that, you know, on-prem AD, it's so common to see someone give domain users local admin or full control of something. But that concept of this all-inclusive group in Azure, it just doesn't exist, right? Mm. So yeah, so they, saw, that... they, they ticked off a few of the really big issues, right? Yeah. So like figuring out what are those big ticket issues in Azure that have big impact, you know, with just a simple flip of a switch that an admin might do one day and then forget about what are those items that are creating huge security impact on those different organizations. And so we know we know about a couple of them so far, but we're but working I mean, largely really that's going to be out. that's going to be over provisioning privilege, right? In 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 the context of Azure AD, it's going to be less about graph theory and more about a straight up privilege audit, I would imagine. That's a lot of it, yeah. And, and then I think a lot of it as, as well is the fact that Azure is this infrastructure as a service offering, and you know there has to be some kind of combination between the identity attack paths that we're tracking with Azure, plus very easy you know, for an attacker, easy things to compromise, like a public facing single page web application, somebody's hosting in Azure. Is that thing vulnerable to some kind of remote code execution? And then what is the impact of that? So those kinds of like easy, common things for an attacker, how do those marry up with what we have now? And how can we deliver that in the product? That's that's a lot of what we're working on now. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the research, I'll just quickly touch on it because we're out of time, but I'm sure you saw the Wiz research about, uh, you know, where they could basically log in to Bing and start changing. Like, that was that was wild, and I was amazed it didn't get more attention. I mean, just quickly, your thoughts on that, Andy? I love the research from Wiz. I think that what they, what they find is usually super bombastic and impactful. And fortunately for us... 
MSRC recognizes that as well. And usually they will fix the issues that the Wiz researchers find. Yeah. That was, that was spectacular, uh, I thought. Anyway, Andy Robbins, thank you so much for joining us on the show to have a bit of a chat about, you know, different ways that people can start thinking about how to use graph theory to do cool stuff. Uh, a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks, Patrick. My pleasure as always. That was Andy Robbins there from SpectreOps. And if you're an enterprise listener, you should absolutely take a look at Bloodhound Enterprise because it really helps to tighten active directory environments like it's a very useful tool it's not all that expensive and um yeah it's certainly something it's a worthwhile exercise bloodhounding your ad Uh, but that's it for this week's show i do hope you enjoyed it i'll be back tomorrow with another edition of seriously risky business in the risky business news rss feed but until then i've been patrick gray thanks for listening 